Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, picking up where we left off last week. Starting with verse 18 through the end of the chapter to verse 25. Uh, It will very much help you to have a Bible in front of you to notice the details of the text. If you don't have a Bible, there is a paperback Bible in front of you underneath one of the chairs. We invite you to take one of those. And if you don't own a Bible and you want to take that Bible home with you, uh, we would love for you to do that and receive it as our gift to you. <clears throat> Genesis 2, 18 through 25. You know, it used to be, um, you know, maybe many years ago now, that if you ask somebody to tell you what their, their dream was, um, they might say something like this. A man would very commonly say something like, well, I want to find a, a woman to marry and I want to settle down. I, I want to have a, a family. And, uh, and live happily ever after. And if you asked a, a woman, she might say, you know, I want to find a, a man to marry, and I want to have children, and I want to settle down, and I want to live happily ever after. And in both of these scenarios, you know, marriage is central to what made up the dream that many people have had in the past about what it is to live happily ever after. Well, we're in a different time now. Friends, times have changed significantly, and many observers are telling us that marriage is actually on the steep decline in our culture. And by that, I don't mean that the divorce rates are increasing. I mean, that has been an issue in the past, and some reports say divorce rates are down actually now. That's not what I'm talking about. I just mean that people don't want to get married anymore. Young people very frequently are uh, at least putting off marriage, but many of them just aren't getting married at all. Marriage is just not in many people's long-term goals and expectations. In fact, the Census Bureau in 2018 found that of men 24 to 34 years old, an age group that you would expect probably pretty actively approaching marriage, 35% are married. This was in 2018, two years ago. 65% were not married. And it seems that those numbers are going down. And there's a lot of reasons for this. We could talk a long time about this. Why is it that people are not wanting to get married? Some people have had very negative, dysfunctional family experiences that have caused them not to want to get married. Um, Women are more educated, more prevalent in the workplace now. So women aren't Um, dependent on marriage for uh, livelihood as they were many decades ago. We also have this kind of individualistic mentality in our culture, in our country, where people don't want to be tied down. They want to keep their options open, and they want to fulfill their dreams by themselves. We also have an influx of pornography in our culture, where some people are finding in kind of an artificial way that their sexual needs are met through that. And so they're not really looking to find somebody to settle down with. Uh, Marriage is on the decline, friends. It's under attack, and that's very different than the way things have been in decades past. I just want to show you as an example of this. uh, The Supreme Court of the United States, this is back in 1952, said this, the family is the basic unit of our society the center of the personal affections that ennoble and enrich human life. 
Since the family is the core of our society, the law seeks to foster and preserve marriage. Would you agree with that? Do you think this is important, that we foster, protect marriage? And if so, how do we do that? Should we as Christians be concerned about the fact that marriage seems to be on the decline? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And uh, one thing I, I want to point out here before we read the text that's very important to understand is this. I've said it a couple times, but in Genesis 1 and 2, what we're seeing is God laying down what are called creation ordinances. Creation ordinances. That is, these are realities that God is laying down as, um, as true for all people in all times and all places. What we're seeing are... Um, truths that are being given to us that are not just for the church or just for Israel, but for everybody. You know, for instance, there's one God, right? That's what Genesis 1 tells us. There's not many gods. There's not a panoply of gods, and you get to choose whoever you want to worship. No, there's one God, and that's true for everybody. We see humankind created in God's image, men and women created in God's image. That's always true for everybody, no matter what you believe or where you're from or what your religion is. Everybody's created in the image of God. It's a creation ordinance. It's something that was set up in the very beginning, and it continues throughout all generations. And we have to add now to that list of creation ordinances, ordinances, marriage. Marriage is a creation ordinance. That's why it's so important. It's so fundamental. It is the cornerstone and building block of human civilization. Not a minor thing. And it's important that we see what the scriptures tell us is true about marriage. So if you're able, please stand, and I'll read Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Holy Spirit, would you please come and give us understanding, open our eyes, open our hearts to behold the truth, the wonderful things that are here, we know by you, placed here in your word for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so we're going to consider marriage in this passage from three perspectives. And the, the first thing I want to show you is that there is a problem here. Um, 
So let me explain what I, I mean by that. Now, God doesn't have problems, right? So I use that term loosely. It's not like God creates and starts proceeding, creating one thing after another, and then finds himself in a mess and has to get himself out of it. No, God knows what he's doing from the very beginning. So I'm using that term loosely, but I think you'll see what I mean here in a second. Uh, the problem is this. You know, very often that when people think about marriage, they, they often think about it in terms of what they learn from shows like the Bachelor and, and the Bachelorette. You know, there's this kind of idea that marriage is mostly about romance and personal fulfillment and being happy and finding somebody who's beautiful. And, you know, those are the criteria that people use mostly when they think about marriage. But as we see marriage being set up here in Genesis 2, it's like none of those things are really in play here. The issue is that there's a problem. And so what's that problem? Well, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, now just by way of review, remember that Adam was created and put in the garden last week. That's what we learned. Eve is not created yet. It's just Adam. And so it says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's the problem. Man's alone. And there's something less than ideal about that situation. Now, you know, probably some questions are going off in your mind here right now. Like, what do you mean? How can things be not good in paradise? Remember, this is the Garden of Eden, paradise. There's no sin yet. There's no evil yet. And what God has been saying throughout chapter 1 is he has been creating this is good and this is good and this is good and, this, and the whole thing is very good. And so we're expected to see the contrast between those statements of what has been good with verse 18. Now there's something not good. Now it doesn't mean that there's evil or sin or that it's sinful for man to be alone. It just means that there's something incomplete here, I think is what the text means. Remember two perspectives on creation, chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? If we go back to chapter 1, we would probably plug this into day 6. So creation's not over yet. God's got more to do. That's what it means when it says it's not good. It's incomplete that Adam is alone. Now, why is this a problem that he's alone? Well, that's because of something we learned several weeks ago called the creation mandate, which is listed for us, explained to us in Genesis 1.28. The creation mandate. Very important thing that we just don't really hear about in Christian circles very much. I don't know why, but the creation mandate is the command that God gave to humanity. It's like God's job description for humankind. And do you remember what God said is, humankind, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, have babies spread out over the earth, and I want you to take dominion over the earth. That's your job, humanity. That's what the creation mandate says. It's really a remarkable thing. It's like what God is saying is, I am ruler over the entire universe, and yet I'm going to give the earth to you, mankind, to take care of yourself. God rules the universe. Men and women rule the earth because the earth has been entrusted to our care. That's what the creation mandate is. When Mary and I go on vacation, very often we get a house sitter. We bring somebody in to take care of our house, watch our dog, get our mail, watch over the place. Now, of course, it's our house. We own the house, but we entrust our house under the care of another. 
And that's what's happening in the creation mandate. God entrusting to our care the earth while he rules the universe. So can you see the problem? That's a big task, right? How is Adam going to do that alone? How is he going to multiply alone? He needs help with that. And how is he going to take dominion over the earth alone? Well, you'll see that this is exactly what, God, what Adam is doing in verses 19 and 20. He's fulfilling the creation mandate. What's he doing? He's, he's naming these animals. God is bringing them to the man. Isn't it interesting? God could name the animals. God's already named different aspects of the universe, right? He called the day day and the night night. God, showing God's authority, you might remember we said, when you name something, it's a way of showing your authority over it. God had authority over the universe. He's entrusted the earth to man, and now man's exercising his authority in naming the animals. That's what's happening in verses 19 and 20. Isn't it interesting? At the end of verse 19, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God didn't really have input in that because God said, Adam, you do it, and he did that. But what's been very clear here is that in that task of fulfilling the creation mandate, Adam needs help. And so you see that at the end of verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So all these animals have been brought to him, and what Adam is realizing and what God is assessing is that none of these animals are the helpers that Adam needs. They're not fit for him. They're, they're not suitable for him. He can't have relationship with them in the way he would like. He talks to them. They don't talk back. They're not fit for him. They're not suitable. Someone else is needed. What Adam needs is a partner that corresponds to him, that complements him, one who is equal to him but distinct from him. And that's God's assessment. For you to fulfill the creation mandate, Adam, you need help. Now, I, I want you to notice something that's pretty subtle, but I think it's important. When we go to verse 18, it does not say, it does not say it is not good that man should be lonely. I think this text is misread sometimes to, to think that Adam was lonely. We really don't get any indication whatsoever that Adam felt anything. We don't know about his emotional state. The text is not saying Adam is lonely or longing for romance. It's God saying, Adam, you need help. It's not a desire for love. It's a responsibility to fulfill the command that God has given to Adam. So, God provides a helper. And you see that word a couple of times, and that helper, we're going to find out, is, is woman. And sometimes women are kind of offended by that, that they're called helpers. And you shouldn't be if you are. The Bible is calling you a helper to the man because in the 16 of 19 places in the Old Testament where the word helper is used, it actually refers to God. The word helper refers to God. Uh, this is a dignified description, and women should not be insulted or offended that that's the language that the Scripture is using. But nonetheless, it is here. God is making the woman to be a helper to the man. So, kind of the point that I'm making here is that there's a, a broader purpose for marriage than just your romantic inclinations. Now, I don't want to suggest that romance has no place in a marriage. I don't mean that at all. 
So guys, you're not off the hook uh, for not being romantic. I mean, read the Song of Solomon and you'll get all the romance that you need. That book is filled with romance. There is a place for romance, a place for love, a place for seeking happiness in marriage. I mean, that's partially why marriage is intended. It's just not the most important thing. And so if you're a single person and you're hoping to get married, let me encourage you to find someone with whom you can glorify God together. That's your first priority. Find someone who's a Christian, believes in Jesus, and will join you in serving Jesus all your life. That's the first thing you should be looking for. Now, falling in love and being happy in that relationship, yeah, I mean, that's a byproduct and a gift of God, and we can expect that to some degree. It's just not the first priority. So that's the problem, okay? That's just setting up. I'm trying to set up you know, the proper way to look at marriage in a way that's not so much informed by our culture, but more informed by what we're seeing here in Genesis 2 about why marriage is instituted. Now, before we go to the next point, a question that we might ask is this. Again, looking at verse 18, it says, it's not good that man should be alone. Is that the same thing as saying, it's not good that man should be single? And the answer to that is no. That's not what this is saying. And here's an example of where we have to allow the entire Bible to address a situation. We don't just want to look at Genesis 2 and say that's all the Bible says about marriage. No, it says a lot more about marriage. And in 1 Corinthians 7, <coughs> we have this passage where Paul refers to his status as a single person. He says, I wish that all were as, my, as I myself am, single. I put that word single in, that's not in the text. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I mean, you see, Paul is saying very clearly here, he, he is affirming singleness as a good thing, as a, as a gift even. Now, if you're single and really longing to find a spouse, you might not use the word gift to describe your current situation. <laughs> and, and I understand that. And maybe you're not gifted to be single and the Lord will provide a spouse for you. I mean, we, we don't know. But one thing I want to be clear about is you shouldn't feel like you're inferior or you're damaged goods or something like that because you're single. Don't feel that way. Scriptures affirm the value of being single. Jesus Christ was single. The Apostle Paul, again, single, never married. Clearly, marriage can't be the highest good if Jesus himself wasn't even married. In fact, we find that in the next age, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any more marriage. Did you know that? <laughs> marriage doesn't last into the next age. Here's what it says in Matthew 22. In the resurrection, that means when we're all resurrected again, in the next age, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but they're like angels in heaven. So actually, the long-term destination for all of us is to be single. For all eternity, enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's why we're going to be single in heaven, because our marriage to Jesus will be what is prevalent, prominent, and everlasting. So a guy named Andreas Kostenberger sums it up like this. Singleness should be recognized as a gift for the select few 
that holds significant advantages for ministry, but is neither intrinsically superior nor inferior to the institution of marriage. I'm not sure the church has always been very good at acknowledging and caring for the single people. We've talked a lot about the value of the family, and that's a good thing, but let's be aware, sensitive to the single people among us. So that's how marriage starts. There's a problem. Got to fulfill the creation mandate. Adam can't do it alone. And so God provides a provision. That's the second thing. God provides Adam with exactly what he needs. And here's how he does it. Verse 21, he puts Adam in a sleep, a deep sleep. And he takes a rib out of Adam's side, closes up the place. And then with that rib, it says, the woman is formed. Now, kind of a peculiar passage. Why would it be a rib that God takes out of man? A guy named Matthew Henry once said, that it might be because um, it, it might be that God didn't want to take something from the top of man to suggest that, that man should be superior to woman or that the woman should be over him and he shouldn't take anything from below the man or from the man's feet so that the man would get the impression that he should trample over the woman. But instead, God takes something from his side so that he would know that the woman is equal to him and near to his heart. A rib is pretty close to the heart. Near to him and close to the heart. The symbolism of the rib here, I think, is something pointing to the intimate personal connection that exists between the man and the woman. And so this is a very exciting moment here for uh, Adam. He's been alone and... God is providing for him what he needs. All these animals have been brought to Adam. He's disappointed. These animals are not going to do the job. And so God brings to him this woman. And you see in verse 23, he says, this at last. You know, finally, I've been waiting at last. This person is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is one of my kind. This is one who corresponds to me. This is one in whom, with whom I can have a relationship. This is someone I can devote myself to and love and live with for my entire life. Adam is thrilled with the creation of woman. So, that's his provision, and that's God's intention. Here's the institution of marriage here. And notice how God is initiating all of this. God's the one who puts Adam in sleep. God's the one who takes out the rib. God's the one who says it's not good that you're alone. God's the one who makes the woman, and then God's the one who brings the woman to the man. It's all God's idea. Marriage is not our idea. It's not a human thing, it's a divine thing. And therefore, we should be very slow when we think about toying with what marriage actually is. It's not our business. God is making this happen. Now, there's a lot of criticism that has been leveled against the Bible and the Christian faith over the years regarding the position that women have. And Christians have been criticized very frequently for kind of demeaning women. The Bible has been criticized for being condescending to women. And sometimes people will point to this passage and they'll say, see, here it is. The woman is just a helper. So uh, let me just kind of talk about this for a moment. Friends, don't buy that argument, okay? Men and women are equal 
in dignity, value, and status before God. The scriptures are clear about that. Back in chapter one, man, or male and female, both made in the image of God. Not the male and not the female, both of them are. We look throughout scripture and you'll see repeated examples of women playing very prominent places. Deborah is this wonderful military leader. Lydia is uh, an entrepreneur, seller of purple claws in the book of Acts. Um, you have uh, Priscilla, a, a teacher of Apollos in the book of Acts. You have uh, the, the, uh, the, the godly woman in Proverbs 31, right? I mean, just an example of integrity and hard work and resourcefulness and respect. And then you have uh, women being the first ones on the scene to testify to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That privilege given to women. Women are affirmed throughout the scripture and in an extremely patriarchal culture like the one in which the Bible was written, those, th those, those affirmations would have been regarded as like radical feminism in the day. The Bible affirms the value of women, but friends, men and women are not the same. They're different, and I never thought the day would come when that would be a controversial statement. <laughs> but it is. Men and women are not the same. Their bodies are structured differently. There's the first thing. That's, that's pretty obvious. They're different. They have different roles, different functions. And you'll see that in, what, in, in some of these details in this text. So many little differences, like Adam was created first. God did not create Adam and Eve at the same time created Adam first and then waited to create, Adam, uh, the, to create Eve, to, to create the woman. The, the text tells us that, that it's the woman that came from man. It's not the man who came from the woman. That's, that's a difference. Adam is the one who receives the moral command from God, which we looked at last week, chapter 2, verse 17. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a command given to Adam. It wasn't given to the woman. The woman didn't even exist at the time. God chose the woman to whom that command would be received. But here maybe is the most significant thing. And here's where you've got to watch it when you kind of interpret the Bible a certain way. Sometimes you'll say, yeah, this is what this means, and this is what this means. Therefore, this is what this means. <laughs> and then you might be a little surprised where you wind up. But remember what I've been saying about naming? God named the day day, the night night, as a way of showing his authority over what he has made. He names things. God entrusts creation to entrust the earth to Adam. Adam shows his authority by naming the animals. Well, what does it say in verse 23? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is Adam talking, so she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam names the woman. Adam calls her a woman. That, that was Adam's idea. And if naming is a show of authority, what this would seem to suggest is that man is in a position of authority in the home and in the church over women. Now, you didn't think I'd say anything more controversial than I already have, and yet there it is. <laughs> now, that, that's not an excuse for men to abuse that responsibility, uh, to be tyrannical or disrespectful, um, it, it is an opportunity for the man to serve primarily 
the woman, but I, I think we cannot escape this. When we look into the New Testament, you'll find Paul saying things like, the wife should be submissive to the husband, and only men should occupy offices of elder and deacon in the church, and he bases it on what is being said right here in Genesis 2. This is his foundation. That's the basis of his argument. He says, because this is the way things started. Now, you might say, yeah, but we're in a different age now. Things are different. Things have changed. We don't live like primitive, old-fashioned people anymore. We're enlightened. We're different. But remember what I said at the beginning. This is a creation ordinance. This is the way God set things up before sin and before evil ever entered into creation. This is paradise. And this is how God has set things up. Now, there's a lot we could say about what are the practical implications of this, and I know this might make some of you very uncomfortable, women in particular, and I would invite a conversation about this, um, and we don't have time to go into practical implications, but I, but I want you to see what the text is saying. Men and women, equal in dignity and value and status before God, but different in role and responsibility. Marriage is the cornerstone of human civilization, a creation ordinance. It's not, it's not perfect. Marriage is not the thing that's going to solve everybody's problems. It's not what's going to make everybody happy. Sadly, many marriages are filled with abuse and neglect, and some result in divorce. You know, marriage doesn't always wind up like we would hope and like we would expect, but the fault of those situations is not marriage as an institution. It's the struggle of living in a sinful world and dealing with sinful people. And that's why marriage doesn't always work out like we would like it. Here's what it says in Hebrews. Let's not forget this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. The benefits of marriage are very well documented in a lot of places. And you can look at tons of studies that will tell you that children are better off when they grow up in a two-parent mother-father household. It's just indisputable. Their education levels are better. Their livelihood is uh, more stable. They're emotionally more healthy. They stay out of jail and away from substance abuse more often than not. I mean, not in every case, no. But there's no question. Children are more stable and healthy when brought up in a family of husband and a wife. Spouses are often better also. They tend to be emotionally better off. They tend to have a more substantial livelihood in a marriage. Minorities tend to function so much better when people are brought up in a traditional family with a mother and a father in the house. That's the best way to predict somebody prospering in our society. Here's what John Stone Street and Sean McDowell say, a culture, will, a, a culture where sexuality is not tied to marriage is one in which the most vulnerable, especially women and children, are without one of their most effective protections. Marriage protects the weak and the vulnerable. That's why it's so important. Ryan Anderson says the decline of the marriage culture has hurt lower income communities and African Americans the most. A leading indicator of whether someone will know poverty or prosperity is whether she knew growing up the love and security of her married mother and father. I mean, if we want to see people prosper and grow and thrive and flourish, it starts with the family. 
And there's a lot of talk in our culture right now about the hardships of certain minority communities, including African Americans. And we would do better to talk less about white privilege and more about the African American family, or the family in any minority community. It starts with a man and a woman coming together and committing to one another and staying together for their lifetime and being there for their kids and repenting of their promiscuity and their sexual freedom. It's just surprising and fascinating that this issue is talked about so little. The family, give a kid a mother and a father. That's what he or she needs. Nancy Piercy says this, because the costs of marriage breakdown are borne by the entire society, it is reasonable for the entire society to work together to support marriage. If you care about children and you care about freedom, you should work to create a strong marriage culture. So this is God's provision for Adam. Give him a wife, institute marriage, and get a family started. But that leads to the third thing here, the pattern. There's a pattern of marriage. A pattern. Verse 24, having said all of this that we've looked at, verse 24 says, therefore, so in other words, here's how it should work, is what God is saying. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Perfect, ideal relationship, but this is before the fall. So next week, we'll see how that has changed. But here's the pattern. Three things I think we can take just from this one verse about the pattern of marriage, the way marriage should function going forward from Genesis 2. One, it should be monogamous. God gives Adam one wife, not many wives. If that's what God, Adam needed, he would have gotten many wives, but he, he just got one. You'll notice the singular words there. A man shall leave his father and hold fast to his wife, not wives. Marriage is monogamous. Marriage is heterosexual as well. God does not give Adam another man. God gives him a woman. A woman, that's the provision, the proper provision. Not another man. We hear a lot about gay marriage. Friends, gay marriage is not marriage. It's not marriage. It's a formal commitment that two people have made to each other, but it's not marriage, and we shouldn't call it marriage. You shouldn't refer to it as a marriage, because it's not. You don't refer to a shape with four sides as a triangle. You don't do that, because that's not what it is. Four sides is a square. <laughs> Call it what it is. And gay marriage is not marriage. And then lastly, it's permanent. It's permanent. The man leaves his father, his former, um, uh, his former authoritative family structure, and then holds fast, commits himself, cleaves then to his wife, and the ideal here is that this would be permanent. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 19. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the ideal, that marriage would last for our lifetime. Now, there are exceptions for divorce. The scriptures talk about that. But the ideal is that marriage would be permanent. Now, some people will say, okay, well, here's what will help me be committed to my spouse. Here's what will help make my marriage last. 
I will live with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we get married, and we'll see how it works. And that will help us. That'll make it more likely that our marriage will be permanent. Should you do that? The answer is no. You shouldn't do that. Ashley's statistics show that couples who cohabitate, couples who live together before they're married, have a higher divorce rate than couples who don't. It doesn't help. Sometimes people will say, yeah, but you know, like when you buy a car, you need to test drive the car to see if it fits and see if you like it. <laughs> really, you're going to compare marriage to buying a car? You're going to compare a person to an automobile? You're about to enter into a sacred covenantal relationship that's much different than buying a car. Don't demean the institution of marriage by using that silly illustration. And then sometimes people will say, well, we just want to get to know each other. And that's the one that might make the most reasonable sense, except here's the problem. People change over the years. <laughs> 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, just people are different. Things happen. Life changes. Surprises rise up. You're just not going to learn about the person in a few months living together that you think you will. And that's not going to keep the person you marry from changing in significant ways. Cohabitation is a bad idea. From Christians, particularly, it's a bad idea. If you want to strengthen the marriage culture in the society and in the church in particular, young people, commit yourself to not living together before you're married. Wait. Now, why am I making a big fuss about all this? <laughs> why do Christians, why are we always so upset about marriage and talk about traditional marriage all the time? You know, is it because we want to go back to the 1950s, like leave it to Bieber? We think that's the best way to live. Is that why? We just want to go back to the best. We don't like change. That's the problem with Christians. Is that why I'm talking about this and making a big deal out of it? No. Here's the reason. It's because marriage has a much deeper, more fundamental meaning than anything actually that we've seen so far in this passage in Genesis. Everything that we've seen in Genesis is true, but as the Bible goes on, we find that actually marriage has a much more profound significance. What is that? It's this. It's that marriage points to the gospel Marriage has theological significance. Marriage should bring attention to the love of Jesus Christ for his church. That's what it means. And it, Paul says it very clearly here in Ephesians 5. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. We just read that. That's Genesis 2. But look what Paul adds to that. This mystery, it's profound. This mystery of marriage and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That's what marriage refers to, Christ and the church. It refers to the gospel. That's why we're so concerned about the decline of marriage. Attacks on marriage are indirect attacks on the gospel because that's what marriage means. As Christians, this is, this is what's most fundamental to our identity. We have a Savior who died for us, a Savior who atoned for our sins, a Savior who has justified us before God and promised that we're going to 
be with our loved ones and our Savior forever and ever one day. We're adopted into his family. All these things are significant to the gospel, and marriage has a way of pointing to that. I, I say this in every single wedding that I conduct. If I've conducted your wedding, you, you've heard this before, <laughs> and I say it over and over again. It's so important to make clear because it's so little understood that marriage is more than just romance and having children and living happily ever after. And so when I do these weddings and I make this point that marriage is about the gospel, I often say, you know, look at these newlyweds. This is wonderful. I mean, their coming together is a way of pointing to the gospel. But you know what is an even more powerful testimony to the gospel is not really the newlyweds so much. It's the person who's been married for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Boy, you want a testimony to the love of God, to God's faithfulness, to the truth of the gospel that God's love never dies, to the fact that God doesn't give up on his people, to the fact that there is nothing in all creation that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that points to that perhaps more than a faithful marriage over the course of decades. So be encouraged, friends. And if you've been married a long time, maybe you're not that happy in your marriage, I don't know, but man, your commitment to each other says a lot about the gospel that you believe. Be encouraged by that. Thankfully, friends, it's not up to the church to save marriage. You know, marriage is hard. Not all marriages last. I understand that. Just, we're just thankful that it's not up to the church to save marriage. The good news of the gospel is that a marriage has saved the church. The marriage between Jesus and his bride. That's what saves us. That's our confidence. And so let marriage be held in honor among all. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us the truth. Help us, God, to be a church that creates a strong marriage culture. Give us grace, Father, to the single people among us, to people who have been divorced, to people who are struggling in their marriages. Father, give us compassion. Let this be a place of care for them. But let this be a place, Lord, where marriage is held in honor among all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.